Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. Hammond's House Museum in West End offers content beyond visual arts with literary figures and musicians. Later in the hour, we'll hear from jazz expert Carl Anthony, about his Hammond's House series, Jazz and Other Distractions. First, Jane Austen in South Asia. In her novel Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen begins, It is a truth universally recognized. Atlanta-based author Sonia Kamal believes in the universal truths of Jane Austen's writings. Kamal has written a clever retelling of Austen's Pride and Prejudice set in modern Pakistan. The book is called Unmarriageable. When I spoke with Sonia Kamal via Zoom, I asked how important it is for readers of Unmarriageable to have first read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. One of the challenges for me was to write this where it would appeal to readers coming with their love of Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice, but also very much to write it as a standalone novel for those who, and believe it or not, there are those people out there who have um, either never read Pride and Prejudice or even heard of Jane Austen. This was a challenge, and I'm grateful so far to have heard that it has met both requirements by um, Janeites, who are avid Austen fans and have taken this novel to heart, and they read it and get all the Easter eggs. But for those who do not come to it uh, from that perspective, um, they're able to absolutely enjoy it as a standalone novel in its own right. And in fact, one of the things that took me by surprise was people were readers who read Unmarriageable for the first time and then go on to read Pride and Prejudice or Jane Austen. Honestly, I never expected Unmarriageable to be a gateway to Austen. And yet, here it is. And it is also thoroughly delightful with its own depth as a story about a Pakistani family, a modern Pakistani family. As Unmarriageable opens, Alizba Binat, 
a 30-year-old English literature teacher at the local British school, is in her classroom of ninth graders who are reading Pride and Prejudice, and their assignment is to rewrite the opening sentence of Jane Austen's novel. Sonia, you have also rewritten that opening sentence. (laughs) Would you tell us yours and also about using that device for framing unmarriageable? You know, one of the first things that when I realized that this was a novel I wanted to attempt writing, because it is a parallel retelling, by which I mean that it is not an inspired by or a continuation or a sequel. It is very much follows Pride and Prejudice's plot and all the characters are in there. It's what I call a parallel retelling, but it was also written from a post-colonial perspective. I wanted to bookend the novel with Um, end it with Jane Austen's own first sentence with which she starts Pride and Prejudice, but have my own variation to set the tone of the novel in Unmarriageable's first sentence. Jane Austen's first sentence is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And uh, my first sentence, Unmarriageable's is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a girl can go from pauper to princess or princess to pauper in the mere seconds it takes for her to accept a proposal. And this particular sentence opened it, this variation, because I have other variations as the first chapters go on, but this particular one sets the tone for the novel and and, and in many respects for the lives that women have led throughout history and in many countries and cultures continue to lead marriage being such an important part of a woman's life or at least in cultures or or countries or or societies where women are not necessarily encouraged to earn their own living which will give them absolute financial freedom it still very much seems to be the case that the ring that you're given um, will determine the quality of your life as you live it. So that's where that first sentence and the bookends of my sentence and Austin's sentence Mm. came from. Please introduce us to the other members of the Binat family. (laughs) Well, like I said, this is a parallel retelling. So all the sisters show up. So there's Jenna, my Jane, who is the Mm -hmm. eldest. Very sweet, very trusting, very naive sometimes in that trust of friendships of people as we see with the Bingley sisters. She doesn't realize that they might not be what they seem the way Alice does. And then there's, of course, our heroine, Alice, um, Elizabeth Binnett, my Elizabeth, who is just as fiery and feisty as Elizabeth and with all the modern words that she uses. And uh, then there's Mari, who is my Mary. There's Kitty, uh, named for Kitty. And there's Lydia, who I've named Lady in the novel. And this is um, a bit of an Easter egg in the, for Jane Austen fans. In the novel, I give a reason for why she's named Lady. Lady is not a Pakistani name, but she names herself in the novel. But also for Jane Austen fans, Jane Austen never published under her own name. Her first novel was uh, published as By a Lady, and that is a nod to her. So, you know, all, all my five Bennett sisters, my Bennett sisters, have their own unique personalities. Kitty struggles with fat phobia. 
she's very overweight compared to her sisters who are more all of them on the slender side and she gets a lot of grief for that and in fact um, this is something I've battled in my own life and I speak out against I'm very body positive there is nothing in this novel that Kitty Binnett has not heard which I have not heard in real life about really? being fat oh absolutely in fact I didn't even include more of the colorful interesting things that I've heard over time because I think no one would believe it in fact I was out on book tour and an uber driver decided to tell me that it was too bad that I had a pretty face but you know I was fat and I should do something about losing weight so even in today's current climate it seems to be people think it's their right to give heavier women advice on what they should and they shouldn't look like and and I bought all of that to to Kitty who is not just bullied by strangers but also by her own family by in particular lady and her mother so all the sisters in here have their distinct personalities and they're warriors in some way or, or another for having an independent life which they can lead on their own terms well that is one thing that i thought was heartbreaking the degree of bullying, not only from the younger sister, which, while unacceptable, is slightly understandable, but that the mother and the other adults are constantly commenting on her size. I love that you have her triumph in the end. Yes, it finally does come. She finally does see what is all good and worthy and of value in her and all the Bennett sisters do by the end of the novel. You know, they all struggle in their own ways, even lady in some respects of what might be important about them as individuals and not just women in their particular society or the country that they're living in or even the world at large. I mean, I'm always so happy and, and delighted when People from different parts of the world and cultures tell me that unmarriageable is just like them. My response is always, oh, I didn't realize you're Pakistani too. You know, I've had people, readers from the American South, Jewish culture, Nigeria, South Korea, Norway, cross the board, write to me and say, this is just like us. And it's been wonderful to be able to have written an uplifting read, which I'm told is what unmarriageable is, but also one that apparently is able to connect people across different cultures. That was very, very different cultures and communities and religions. That was very important to me while writing this novel. You have underscored the universal truth. Truly, the, it is a universal truth that if you write what is basic to all humanity, or in this case, to a reading public that understands class differences, you can appeal to a wide swath of the population. Now, with five daughters, the parents, especially the mother, are always worried about marrying off the girls. How do the sisters themselves differ from one another in character? You gave us a bit of what Alispa and Jenna are like. The other three have very distinctive personalities as well. They do. You know, they, they all, all the five sisters have their own personalities, their own dreams. Mari, who is my religious character in here, 
wanted to be a doctor and she wasn't able to be a doctor. She wanted to be a cricket player, but unfortunately she wasn't able to fulfill that dream either. And she increasingly turned to God in order to make sense of why her dreams and her desires were not making out, as I'm sure many of us do. I mean, I certainly have in the past asked why something isn't working out. That's something she turns to and, and finds comfort in and solace in. Kitty, like I said, is battling fat phobia and she's an artist. She's an excellent artist in her own right. In fact, she's always making drawings and sketches of the people she sees around her. And um, sometimes one of the things she and Lady actually do share is that when Kitty makes certain drawings of people who are being silly and hypocritical around them, they're able to have a laugh over that. So as much as the sisters but heads in this novel because Unmarriageable is also very much a story about sisters and friendships and mothers and the relationships all of them have with each other and their interactions. It's about how sisters can be perhaps not very pleasant to each other, but it's also about how sisters look out for each other at the end of the day more than perhaps being not nice. And, um, and mothers too. My Mrs. Bennett, Pinky Bennett. She has an interesting history of her own in that she comes from financially constrained circumstances and a family, and yet she marries into the upper classes by sheer dint of her good looks. And as one of the sentences in Unmarriageable says that, you know, this is the defining moment in her life, that a man took one look at her, proposed to her, and suddenly whisked her off into a dreamland and into financial security, which she could never have dreamt of before. And yet that very man, by dint of his own ineptitude, perhaps, managed to bring them back to rags. So Pinky Bennett sees rags to riches to rags in Unmarriageable. And this is very much a novel about finances also. What happens when your finances are, are tied to a male making good decisions for you and your family? In fact, one of the things I worked on in the novel was that none of the men actually in the novel really work. All the women are working women. Hamai Hami and Sammy, the Bingley sisters, they own their own company. In fact, it's a company that makes sanitary napkins because sometimes there are certain topics are taboo to speak of openly and one of them is girls and periods. I try to make complex characters. Hani and Sammy again are sisters also. Sometimes they bicker, sometimes they're there for each other. But back to Mrs. Bennett herself, she, because she rose in the ranks through her looks, her looks and looks in general have become a very important part of her life for her. She thinks that that is the only thing that matters, which is why she keeps telling her daughters to be it Kitty to lose weight, be it Alice to not sit out in the sun because her complexion might become dark. And I try to include all these different things that so many women in the world face where we're told that being dark is not preferable. Why isn't it preferable? Dark women are beautiful. Fat women are beautiful. Everyone is beautiful in their own right. These are social things that I definitely wanted to include in the novel and, and question their worth and value, not just in today's world, but in time immemorial. Who said we're supposed to look a certain way, dress a certain way, behave a certain way, speak a certain way? Why should we have to cross our ankles daintily? Why can't we smoke in public the way a man does without our morals being judged? I mean, it's not healthy 
it's by no means healthy to smoke in public and I'm not endorsing it. But in the novel, my, my Elizabeth Bennett and Charlotte Bennett secretly smoke. And the reason they secretly smoke is because in certain societies, women are judged by their action. Their physical actions are judged morally, whereas guys don't necessarily have to carry that burden. Unmarriageable also questions what feminism means, the role of feminism in women's lives and worlds, but also in men's lives and worlds. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say, I think my Valentine Darcy is as feminist as they come. It's a book about women, but it's also a book about men. We'll return to my conversation with author Sonia Kamal in just a moment. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with Atlanta author Sonia Kamal about her novel, Unmarriageable. It's a Pakistani spin on Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. Here, Sonia Kamal explains that in Pakistani culture, a family's ancestry can be equally important to their wealth. Yes, definitely. Pedigree in certain cultures and countries does matter, regardless of money, which is what the Bennett families in Unmarriageable find when they're invited to the biggest wedding in their town, Adilibabad. That definitely matters. And, you know, I'll, I'll go so far as to say it perhaps matters everywhere. I mean, we know of certain Kennedys, they're in the limelight, but I'm, I'm sure that there are Kennedys which don't have that much money or clout, and yet when they mention who their relatives are, People sit up a notch or so, or people who might not have money in the U.S., but nevertheless go to a certain college. I mean, in the U.S., I see class playing out in different ways. We see it through college. We see it through cars. We see it through material goods rather than pedigree. So I wouldn't necessarily call America a classless society at all. I think there is class here. I don't think it's spoken about as much as it perhaps should be, but it does manifest itself very much in different ways um, than pedigree. I mean, America did get rid of the royal system with the American Revolution, but then other things did come in to replace that. And I think that's what a lot of um, readers here are really enjoying about Unmarriageable also, which is a look into a class system which might seem different on one level, but on the other hand, I think they can really relate to it in many other ways too. Sonia, in your essay, Pride and Prejudice and Me, you state that as you read Jane Austen, Elizabeth Bennet, 
and other characters ceased to be English, that to you they were quintessentially Pakistani. Would you explain that further? Absolutely. I mean, I think the wonderful thing about phenomenal writers is that they're able to breathe such life into their characters that you can see across and through what they might be wearing, what they might be eating, where they might be living, to recognize the universality of them. And that's what all of Austen's characters in Pride and Prejudice, as well as the rest of her novels, were to me. Elizabeth might have been walking through the English countryside, but the but she was walking. She was doing something I did in Pakistani parks. She's able to see the people around her, be it Catherine de Berg or Mr. Collins, and see right through them. And I could do that with my society too. And Austin was such an influence on me for that particular reason. And hats off to her. I always say that if Austin was living today, she would have definitely been a psychologist or a psychiatrist. She has her finger on the pulse on what makes people tick and not take an interactions. She's just so relatable. And, and I hope was able to bring that to my characters in Unmarriageable too, because where Austin made her world universal, I hope that, you know, by setting Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan, I'm able to make Pakistan and, and societies like that universal to readers who might not necessarily have a chance to see Pakistan or countries or that particular the South Asian region in a way that is different from what we usually tend to see on the news. You know, I always say that growing up in the 80s in Pakistan, if you hadn't come to the US, all you would have known about America in Pakistan was Baywatch and soap operas <laughs> like... <laughs> dynasty in Dallas and you might well have thought that okay everyone in America is running around on beaches in red bikinis which is obviously not true I mean even in America there are so many Americas there's your east coast west coast midwest sensibility same with Pakistan same with every country in the world there's no single story in any country, depending on the class you belong to in any country. And then within that class, family you belong to can really determine the choices you have in life. My father gave me permission to come out to college in America in the early 90s by myself. And yet I'd been offered acting roles in TV dramas. And it was actually my, my dream to be an actress and not a writer. But he absolutely put his foot down on that. And like I always like to ask and ponder is, does this make my father progressive or did it make him conservative in his approach to what my life should be? Because he allowed me education, but yet he didn't allow me the freedom of fulfilling the dream of being an actress. Where we find ourselves in life is complex, it's complicated, and not always up to us. And I think that's another thing I try to explore in Unmarriageable through all five of uh, the Bennett sisters' stories. Yes. I'm curious, going back to modern Pakistan, you assign dates, specific dates, to the events in Unmarriageable. And the last section, I believe, ends in the spring of 2001. Something like that, yes. It, it feels very deliberate that you avoided... 9-11. One of the few critiques that often come up about Austen's writing is that she did not include the greater political goings-on of her time. 
and that she was a drawing room novelist alone. Now, I, I tend to have a bit of a disagreement with that because I believe she does bring in the greater politics when need be. I mean, she was very aware of them. Her cousin, Eliza, was married to a French aristocrat who was guillotined. Austin's brothers were in the Navy. She lived through, you know, many revolutions in her time. She was very aware she, of what was going on. And she bought them into her novels when, when she wanted. For instance, just in Pride and Prejudice alone, the militia is in Meryton, which is where our Pride and Prejudice takes place. By that, we mean there are soldiers there, which is what Lydia and Kitty are all giddy about. So, you know, she definitely included the greater world affairs when, when she thought that, I believe, when she thought her plot and characters needed them to. However, I wanted to mirror this critique in Unmarriageable so that modern contemporary readers could maybe sort of get a taste of it, insofar that one of the sections uh, ends on October 2001. And when the story picks up, I assume that certain readers might now expect mention or 9-11 to play some role, but it doesn't. It's not there at all. And this is very much my way of having readers confront that critique that does Austin bring in world events or not? What does that mean? Not to have them play out in the way readers and modern readers expect world events to have a role in a story. I also think in so doing, and perhaps this is somewhat hopeful on my part, or wistful, that heightened anti-Islamic sentiment from the West didn't play out in these characters' lives. I wrote about Pakistan that I've grown up in, that I visit and live in, that my, my family, my friends, um, everyday Pakistanis go through, uh, which is Alice and her friends, and they go to watch the theater. Alice jogs and runs in public parks. She and her sister go to cafes. They enjoy coffee, dessert. They complain about their mom and guys. And these are all things that everyone in Pakistan does all the time. You know, like I mentioned, sometimes when we see things from just one angle, Baywatch angle, or things we see in the news, we don't get a full picture of what a country is and how people in that country live. Unmarriageable was certainly, I mean, no good writer. You write to tell the story you want to write. And I wanted to write a story about Pakistan that I know. And, and, you know, those particular aspects did not feature in this story. They're not important to this story. So I saw no need to, to bring them up. This is very much a story about five sisters, their mother and their quest to live as fulfilled a life that they can without societal expectations, making their lives smaller than they need to be. It's the same everywhere, even in the U.S., I think. Certainly for many people, marriage is no longer the extremely important thing that it used to be. But on the other hand, I often have people saying that their parents, their mothers especially, are badgering them, for lack of a better word, that they'd like to be a grandmother soon. Their expectations, societal expectations, I think, play out in different ways everywhere, no matter where we are. At the end of the day, we all try to juggle how much importance and value to give to community and family and how much to give to our own dreams and desires. So do you make such a wonderful case for universal truth and <laughs> everyone being able to relate to these concerns? There's a great deal of attention and concern now, sensitivity, about cultural appropriation 
who has the right to tell another story, and so on. And yet, you see yourself in early 19th century English literature. How is that possible? Because uh, Jane Austen and English literature across time by dint of British colonization is very much part of Pakistani literature and the literature of South Asia. And as you know, that is one of the themes running through Unmarriageable also, which is when you might not have the most savory of histories, and yet it is part of your history, how do you reconcile with those bits of it? What do you do with it? Do you lock them up in museums? Do you strut them out? How do you do something positive with them? What does that positivity even mean? English came to all British empire and colonies, like many languages do through imperialism. One of my epigraphs for Unmarriageable starts out with part of an address that British colonizer Thomas Babington Macaulay gave in his address to British Parliament in 1835 about why English and everything English was the best over native languages, native culture, classes, uh, dresses, uh, customs, and why English needed to replace everything, but also that they wanted to create confused citizens who were brown in color, but yet English in sensibilities and really would not be accepted by either one. And there's a professor who called unmarriageable Macaulay's worst nightmare because there's no confusion over here at all. <laughs> I took yeah, I took the legacy of British colonization, the, the language that I grew up in, which is English, and I took my culture, which was always there, and I fused the two to write Unmarriageable. In fact, it is very much a post-colonial project and retelling as far as I'm concerned. It was done with that very specifically in mind, that I wanted to um, take back, if you will, certain parts of history. You know, as, 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 as colonized subjects, you are meant to look up to empire and everything empire, but you are never meant to think of yourself as equal to it or, or aspire to it. And um, with Unmarriageable, I very much did that. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you are just joining us, my guest is the award-winning Atlanta-based author Sonia Kamal. Her novel, Unmarriageable, is a retelling of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice set in Pakistan. In this part of our discussion, Sonia Kamal explains how her love for reading English literature coexisted with her Pakistani identity. I read uh, Pakistani literature through translation and as best as I can through Urdu, which I've tried to teach myself. Because like I said, I grew up in the English medium system and with colonization in Pakistan, at least, the class is sort of divided over English speaking and non-English speaking. And it became increasingly apparent to me that by dint of growing up with British literature, what I started doing very quickly from an early age was reorienting, if you will, remapping things to fit my culture. So bonnets became dupattas and uh, scones became samosas. If a novel was set in 
Jane Austen's villages or if it was set in Thomas Hardy's wide landscapes and, and heaths and stuff, I would, I would retransport them to Lahore and the streets where I'd grown up, the, you know, the houses, the mansions that I visited, lived in, saw, the schools that I went to. And it just became second nature for me to start doing that. And so I saw the universalities in literature very quickly. But what I felt was not there was readers from Western culture who did not have that same opportunity, to put it in, in, in those terms, to be able to see themselves in a different culture, in different dress, in different foods and languages, and be able to connect to those universalities. So a lot of the thematic material often between Pakistani literature and Western literature, be it British books that I grew up in, or be it even American books like Judy Bloom's Are You there, God, It's Me, Margaret, which is a seminal book for me, or even S.C. Hinton's Outsiders, which is, it's all about class. It's about the haves and the have-nots. And reading those as a teenager, as, a, as an adolescent, as a teenager, I wanted to tap into the universalities of literature across cultures, across civilizations. Every civilization has its own rich rich cultural history when it comes to books and film and, 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 you know, literature. And I wanted to be able to connect those two. In fact, I call it in Unmarriageable, I call it analogous literatures. And there's a whole paragraph about books which correspond to each other thematically. Sunlight on a Broken Column, actually, by Atiya Hussain is one of my favorite books. Atiya Hussain's own history is very interesting. And I read that book for a master's class, and it, ha it so happened that it had been sitting on my shelf forever. Whenever I go back to Pakistan, I live in the US. Whenever I go back to Pakistan, I just buy up all the books that I could off the shelves and bring them to, to America. And I happen to have it. And it was assigned for a master's class. And I finally read it. And I just saw myself in it. It's about a girl, as I say, an unmarriageable who lives what she calls two, her two streams. She lives a Western life and she lives an Eastern life. And she has to reconcile the two. And that's very much been what my own life has been, a reconciliation, and in many respects, a happy re reconciliation of the, the upbringing that I found myself in. Because, you know, I was born in Pakistan. At six months, my family moved to England. And when I was nine, we moved to Saudi Arabia, to Jeddah, where I went to an international school where the library was full of British and American books and books from Australia and Canada, like Anne of Green Gables, but also my peers, the classmates I went to, it was like a mini United Nations. So there were kids bringing folk tales and books from their own countries. It was, oh, it was wonderful. I really, I, I appreciate it. I loved it then, but I think I really, really appreciated it once I was an adult. Unmarriageable was your MFA thesis at Georgia State. Is that correct? Yes. Did you go from presenting this MFA thesis to a contract with Random House. I, I actually wrote Unmarriageable very fast. I had two months to deliver the thesis. There was a glitch in the syllabus and I, I we discovered I only had two months to write it. And it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I was really very intimidated by what I was planning to tackle by writing a post-colonial retelling of Pride and Prejudice. It was quite an intimidating project for me. And um, just by dint of having two months, I didn't have time to worry about what I was doing. Would I be able to do what I set out to do? Would I do it well? I just wrote it. And yes, you never know what the publishing industry will uh, pick up 
and not pick up, especially if you're a writer of color. And I have to say it was sold very quickly. And here we are. Yes. This is absolutely fantastic. And not only the pride you bring to your own family and the glory of achievement you must feel, but this certainly does Georgia State University's MFA program proud. It's a wonderful program. I, I had a wonderful time. And it was, I actually did a four-year full-time master's, which was interesting and intimidating in its own right. And since then, the master's has gone down to two years, I believe. But um, definitely four years was an adventure of its own. I have three little kids. All They were little at that time when I started and finished. So Amazing. It's, that is its own separate conversation. <laughs> I can imagine. And its own separate book. In the end, Alice and Darcy are bound together by their love of literature. I think what Alice was seeking for Elizabeth Bennett, especially in Austin's time, because women, especially of her class, of Elizabeth Bennett's class, could not work. And once they got married, they were very much the property of their husband and anything they bought into marriage would become property of their husband too. Now, of course, contemporary Pakistan is not like that at all. Women are choosing to be single. They're definitely realizing and accepting that it's happier to be single than to be in a marriage and miserable. This is something that Alice very much wants to teach her students. But I think with with Elizabeth Bennett, I mean, in her time, for her to say no to the buffoon Mr. Collins and the buffoon Mr. Darcy, a different sort of buffoon at her time, was very bold. But even for Elizabeth, she's, Elizabeth also says no to my Mr. Collins character and, of course, Valentine Darcy, because what she's seeking ultimately in contemporary Pakistan, in the contemporary world, is respect. You know, love is great and Elizabeth Bennett wanted held out for love, but I think Elizabeth Bennett also held out for respect. And that's something I very much wanted to have my Alice Bennett reflect also. And same with her friendship with Charlotte. Charlotte is my favorite character in all of Austen's novels. People very much say that Elizabeth Bennett is the feminist and the bold girl, and she absolutely is. But you know, Charlotte Lucas is too. We we in contemporary readers tend to think of her as, oh, poor Charlotte, she had to make do with Mr. Collins. It's Charlotte, for me, who is the modern woman. She decides Mr. Collins is a good catch and match for her. She accidentally meets him, as Austin tells us, in the lane. She very much orchestrates his proposal to her. She knows what's good for her. And later, when Elizabeth Bennet and Alice Bennet, you know, tell her that, oh, how can you marry him? Charlotte does not fall for peer pressure. And I remember the first time I read Pride and Prejudice at age 16, I was really taken by that. Because, you know, as a teenager myself, you 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 don't do anything without your friend's approval or with conferring with them. I mean, you spend hours, much to my own poor mother's, um, who is also <laughs> Mrs. Bennett in her own right, you know, chagrin. I would spend all evening on the phone. But that's what you do as a teenager or, or as a girl in, in, in many societies. Your friends and their opinion is very important to you. And it always struck me how Charlotte didn't let that stop her from doing what she believed was right for her. Elizabeth did what was right for her. And Charlotte did what was right for her. And I followed that through with Unmarriageable. And for both Elizabeth and Alice, respect is very important. And that is the medium that Darcy, Valentine Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett find themselves connecting over. Mr. Darcy, he finds that he respects Alice and Alice finds that she respects him. And they connect through books. 
both from the Western canon and the Eastern canon. So this is ultimately a feminist marriage, or at least a relationship of equals. And I think that's putting it very beautifully, because feminism is all about a relationship of equals and a respect for equals and love that that equality fosters. So so yes, very much so. And a love for books, too. Yes. <laughs> and reading. Would you tell us about the title? Yes. So I very much wanted a one-word title. And it was quite a struggle trying to come up with something which for me would encapsulate the novel. And I was coming up with I, my husband, my, 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 my best friend, my friends, my kids. We were all throwing out, you know, ideas for months. And then it so happened. My family was taking a vacation in D.C. And I wanted to go. I think it was the, the National Gallery and I thought it was in one direction, and my husband said it was in the other direction. I, of course, said he was wrong, and I stomped off in the direction I thought it was in, and as I was stomping off, I, I said, oh, he's so unmarriageable, and there was my title, and like I always joke, you know, marriage has its uses, but, you know, I, I will have to say, <laughs> he was right. <laughs> it was in the other direction. But, um, you know, that's where the title came from. And I have an essay on BuzzFeed about how I met my husband, how I married him. It was very important for me to marry a man that I respected as an equal, a man who would respect me as an equal. I honestly did not think I would ever meet someone like that. And I did. The title is very much a result of me making a wise choice when it came to my own marriage. (laughs) Now, you mentioned originally you wanted to be an actress. Have you had any offers for screen adaptations of Unmarriageable? I've had too many offers, and I hope to have good news very soon. Oh, well, I hope you will let us know when you do. Absolutely, I will, I will. It's going to be its own adventure, and I'm very, very excited to see what will happen with that and looking forward to it myself. Sonia Kamal, this has been a joy, and thank you for demonstrating once again across cultures the joy and the delight of literature. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure and a dream. Atlanta author Sonia Kamal, her novel Unmarriageable, Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan, is available in paperback now. You are listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The Hammonds House Museum in Atlanta's West End continues to offer rich content through its virtual programming. The latest addition to the museum's arts and cultural programming is a series being offered bi-weekly through December, Conversations about jazz and other distractions with Carl Anthony. He joins us now, along with Leatrice Elsie, the executive director of Hammond's House. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us, Lois. Thank you, Lois. 
how did this series originate? Well, you know, as we've been thinking about our digital programming, um, you know, we already had a visual arts component and just like the, the museum's regular um, programming, we have just this array of programs that we um, kind of focus on and music, um, specifically jazz music has always been a thing for us. So we decided that we wanted to translate that online and what does that look like? Um, and so Carl and I had been talking about just kind of a jazz conversation in general, not necessarily for the museum. We were really thinking about it in terms of Carl's own portfolio. Um, and we've probably been talking about that for you know, probably about a year or so um, as he's been, cause you know, he's moved from Atlanta and he's in Miami now. And so it's like, okay, so, you know, as he's been thinking about, you know, some things that he wanted to do. And then when we started thinking about this, I was like, you know what, Carl, why don't we join forces? and create this property for the museum with you as the host. And that's kind of how it came around. And we really wanted to, you know, present something that did a deeper dive into jazz music. So probably a little bit more than he was able to do when he was a radio host where, you know, on radio, you're really able to talk to an artist, talk about their latest project, do some background, but not what we are doing in this hour, where we're really kind of making it subject matter, you know, driven. Carl, have you decided on all of the topics for this series? It runs through December. We haven't gotten a full schedule yet, but we're looking at programs like uh, revisiting the Young Lions, talking about some of the composers, both old and current looking at different vocalists who have uh, changed the landscape of jazz singing. Those are just some of the topics that we're planning on dealing with because jazz is just an integral part of all of the music that is coming out of America now. Uh, and it has been for decades. I mean, it's often referred to as America's classical music. It was born and raised and continues to grow here in the United States. I was hoping you could talk about your role as nighttime jazz host of Serenade to the City. Thousands of Atlantans know you from your years at WCLK. That was... Um very special time for me um, in the music industry. Uh, Atlanta was booming with jazz uh, during those uh, years that I was at uh, WCLK. And it was always important to me to offer our listeners not only new jazz from international and national artists, but also to present the local artists that uh, we're doing such great things in sustaining the music in Atlanta. You know, the visiting musicians, you know, they come and they go, you know, they're in and out. They help create the wealth of sound that Atlanta offers, but it's the local musicians that I always wanted to favor because they kept the music going in the city. You know, so I was always out in the clubs seeking to find out who was doing what and you know, put together a jazz calendar that allowed people to know where to go 
and what kind of music to listen to, you know, so they didn't have to travel needlessly to find the wrong kinds of music. Serenade the City was a milestone for me and the ability to host shows and meet musicians from all walks of life was just a pleasure. Mm. Then in 2011, you founded the website Notorious Jazz. Why was that important to you, to have that platform? I wanted to create a platform that encompassed an educational component where people could go out and look at my blog and find out who was important in making this music happen. I called it Notorious Jazz because the jazz age was a notorious age in American music. You know, it birthed a whole lot of innovators. And, you know, you had people like Duke Ellington, Jimmy Lunsford, and, you know, the Dorseys. And they just created a time when the music was alive and they danced to it. And everybody was just feeling their oats, for lack of a better term. But I wanted people to know who was responsible for this music. And they can come to Notorious Jazz and put in a name and find an artist and also find out who they were related to in terms of making music and who they inspired and who inspired them. And that's why I created Notorious Jazz. So getting back to the series, will the series offer some sort of primer? Are some of the topics you will discuss in these digital sessions a beginning for some listeners? Or, Beatrice, you mentioned a deeper dive. I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of really who your audience is, whom you target here. A large percentage of the audience are people who are jazz heads, who I would consider jazz heads, people who love jazz music and um, are really appreciative of taking that next step, you know, and to be able to have a conversation about jazz from a different angle. Um, and we have had a few people on that are new to jazz because, you know, part of this is really introducing the form to people as well. So one of the um, shows that we want to do really is a primer. Um, and actually it will, I mean, it'll be a number of shows that are a primer where it's Jazz 101. So Carl has put together a Jazz 101 type of project. And so that is something that we will use too. Actually, he used to, back in the days when I worked at the National Black Arts Festival, he used to do that for us at the festival. So Carl, someone lands from another planet. <laughs> where would you begin? Where would you suggest that visitor from another planet begin? What would be the first piece of jazz you'd recommend listening to? Everybody's classic. Miles Davis is kind of blue. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's something I think that everybody can get into and understand. For me, it's just a great place to start.
I actually started with uh, Sonny Rollins' The Bridge was the first quote unquote real jazz album I ever heard. You know, I grew up on Billie Holiday and Broadway. Father loved Billie Holiday, so he had everything she had ever recorded on 78. And my mom liked Broadway. And I found out that, you know, a lot of the Broadway tunes ended up being jazz classics. But definitely Miles Davis's Kind of Blue would be a great beginner album for any visitor from anywhere. Hmm. Jazz has symbolically been unifying. When the U.S. State Department wanted to help fall relations with the Soviet Union, mid-20th century, even a little earlier than mid-20th century, they sent some of America's greatest musicians as jazz ambassadors. In what ways can this series help unify us during a period that feels so very torn apart. Jazz has always been a unifier. The music has always been a unifier. And really, in a broader, from a broader perspective, art has always been a unifier. And it provides us with a space that we can all come in and speak a common language. And then from that, you know, kind of space of commonality, we're able to branch off into our issues and talk about our issues and deal with our issues in a different kind of way. Hammond's House Executive Director Leatrice Elsie and former jazz radio host and founder of Notorious Jazz, Carl Anthony. The museum's bi-monthly digital series, Conversations About Jazz and Other Distractions, continues through December. The next virtual episode will be this Thursday, August 20th. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 to hear about the intersection of arts and ethics at Emory University. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. 
Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.